0: Well, today's the day, today's the the Sunday where we say and we hear, Happy Resurrection Sunday. So I should say, Happy Resurrection Sunday. Some of you have said that today, some of you have heard that today, Uh, you've just heard it now, it's sort of what Christians like to say, in America at least, Happy Resurrection Sunday. But what about those who hear Happy Resurrection Sunday, who don't believe in the resurrection? What about the many people who hear Happy Resurrection Sunday who, who don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? There are a lot of people like that. A lot of people I know. Some of you might even fall under that category that, that you hear that and you think, but I, I don't even believe that he was raised from the dead. What about those people? What, what do we do? Well, we could do some quick fixes. We could just say it louder. Um, we could yell at them about Jesus. Um, We could tell them about a mystical experience that we've had. We could tell them to read a book about someone else's mystical experience or send them to a movie about someone else's mystical experience. What do we do? How do we talk to people who don't believe in a resurrection? That's what we're going to do this morning, not the quick fix version uh, because the quick fix version doesn't usually fix, if ever, We're going to take some cues from the Apostle Paul uh, in a non-traditional Easter sermon uh, in Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, let's look at the non-traditional Easter sermon. I think up until now, it's usually been pretty traditional Easter sermon at Omaha Bible Church. The service so far has been pretty traditional Easter service. And so hopefully you won't be too terribly offended if I take the liberty of talking about the resurrection in a non-traditional text um, because in one sense Christians we get it I mean Christians we get the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead and, and if he's raised from the dead he's the firstborn of the many brethren and that means we're guaranteed resurrection and so we're excited about that and, and guess what we'll talk about next week at church the resurrection of Jesus and the next week it'll be with the resurrection of Jesus and, and so so we get it so Maybe if you could just give me a little bit of latitude, and and let's have today, at least this time, be, um, if you're a Christian, an opportunity for you to maybe learn how to um, be better at communicating the truth of resurrection to other people. It's going to be other-oriented, and maybe you are that kind of person, and hopefully it can help you to think through how someone who's competent at explaining resurrection to people who don't believe in the resurrection, how, how they do it. So Acts 17 is our text. Um, If you're taking notes this morning, uh, I'm going to be following an outline of 10 realities about God, 10 realities about God that help us to make sense of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we'll work our way through as we work our way through this passage. Again, there are quicker ways to try to um, tell people they should believe in the resurrection. This is not the quick fix. This is the the big-picture fix, if you will, um, and I hope it's helpful. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, that's where the city authorities gathered, civil authorities, religious authorities, and they're putting him on trial, so to speak, there. They gathered him there, literally at the hill of Ares, the god of war, the Areopagus, and said... Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way, you are very religious. Some of your translations might say spiritual or, or very superstitious. You're thoroughly religious, thoroughly spiritual, thoroughly superstitious. It's one of those kind of words where maybe we don't know if he's complimenting them or criticizing them. And I think that's probably the idea. I perceive that you are very devout to these things. Then let's read the next verse. Verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And let's pause there for a moment. So far, pretty straightforward, right? He's dealing with people who don't believe in resurrection. Now, these are not atheists. So we can learn some things about how to talk to atheists. That's absolutely true. But here, these are people who are spiritual people. They're religious people. They're they're into... Superstition, spirituality, we, we, we talk in those terms sometimes today, spiritual, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's kind of the idea. They're really religious and they have so many idols and so many statues and so many different little uh, icons and things all around the city. And they're so committed, Paul, complimenting them or not, we can't really tell. says, you are so devout, you even have an idol to an unknown God. Got to cover your bases. You know, just in case we missed one, among the pantheon, right? Many gods. Let's make sure we have this, this one. But they're resurrection deniers. And we're already now to our first reality about God that helps us to put the resurrection in place. First reality about God that helps us to understand the significance of the resurrection would be God is knowable. God is knowable. Not noble, he's that too, but here, knowable. able And before we actually look at where that comes up in our passage, just so you know where he's going and to set the tone of things, he starts by talking about resurrection. They don't believe in resurrection. He's going to come full circle and end on resurrection and show them why they need to believe in resurrection. But in the meantime, what he does is he steps 10 feet back And gives them the big picture about who God is and how they relate to this one God. Okay? To use fancy terms, he gives them the meta-narrative, the big story, the big picture. And I would encourage you to make sure you learn that. Because whether you're talking to a polytheist, many gods, somebody who's really into spirituality, or someone who says, I'm not at all, I'm an atheist. The way to communicate with the person in a thoughtful, kind, gracious way is not just by raising your voice. It's by helping them to understand the big picture. The big picture. Start with resurrection. Reject it. Let's come full circle. In light of what you believe, in light of what I've perceived in your culture, let's come full circle and I'll tell you the big story and then I'll show you why you really, really, really do need to believe in resurrection. Again, it's not the quick fix. But we probably, as Christians, I'm talking to those of you who are Christians, we we probably need to get over the quick fix mentality. Um, You know, how's it working for you? (laughs) Probably need to take some notes here and, and say, you know... I want to communicate the resurrection because I care about people and I want them to trust in Jesus. And and maybe I need to take a little bit more time and a little bit more thoughtfulness. Maybe I need to be a better observer of what they do believe and don't believe and how I can take the timeless, true narrative and help them understand it. So they can believe or they might reject or they might make fun of you, but at least they understood what the real message is. And by the way, that's what they're going to do to Paul. Some are going to reject, some are going to say we want to hear more, and some are going to say we believe this too. That's what we're aiming toward, making it so clear that people can at least know what we're talking about, and either make fun of us, which we don't want, say, I've got questions, or say, you know what, thank you for loving me enough to take the time to show me big picture so that I can see Jesus for who He really is, and I trust in Him. Okay? That's where we're going. I'm excited about it. hope you are too. Number one, God is knowable. He is knowable. Not a big deal if you're a Christian. A huge big deal for some other people, though. How do we know that He's saying God is knowable? We know He's saying that because in verse 23 toward the end, when they have an uh, an idol that says, to the unknown God... Paul then says, look there, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. As soon as he says proclaim, we're talking about knowing, knowability, knowing. You can't proclaim, it's a word for preach, you can't proclaim, at least not truly and effectively, something that that you don't know, that you don't understand, although we've all heard sermons that seem like it. (laughs) In In the best sense, you can't proclaim something that's not knowable. Remember our context too is, it's knowable, he starts with Jesus in the resurrection, And think about this in terms of he's not going to argue this is God is knowable because of something that happened inside of me. We argue that way sometimes. He's arguing God is knowable because he's revealed himself in Christ, who, by the way, different from all the other religious leaders and religious figures, has been raised from the dead. He's different. And so that's why we didn't sing this morning, You ask me how I know He lives. That's why I didn't do the offertory too. But <laughs> He lives within my heart. That's not His starting point. His starting point was to talk about resurrection, which is historic in real time, and real space, verifiable before witnesses. This is not like some religions where the whole religion is built upon what some man experiences in a barn. Not verifiable, very questionable, or what some other religious leader experiences over the course of 20 years all by himself in the Middle Eastern desert. Well, how do we know? Well, because it's a mystical experience I've had. And Christianity doesn't start there. It starts there with real time, real history, real empty tomb, real resurrection, verifiable historical before witnesses. By the way, it doesn't even start there. It starts with God's long track record of working in time, in space, in history, not just in isolation, in secret, not verifiable. The the Christ thing, the the, the work of Christ, the Christ thing, I must be tired. (laughs) The work of Christ is is the climactic high point of it. But he can say things like, I proclaim to you, because we're talking about real things. That, that really happened. Makes it different. Unique. Not isolated. Not unobservable. Not unverifiable. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you with authority. Now, again, one more point of contrast. We'll go faster on some of these other ones. But I, he really couldn't, he, he could as an arrogant person, I proclaim this to you because it's something I felt inside. Well, that's all fine and good, but, hmm, did it really happen? Or was it dinner? I, I, I proclaim this to you because I had a dream. Well, was it the medication you're on? Or is it really of God? And you know, that's fine if that's your experience, but you know what? That's not necessarily my experience. He would be, he could proclaim that because we do sometimes, unfortunately. But it would be arrogant. Here he says, I proclaim this to you. Outside of me, real fulfillment prophetic genuine historical so he doesn't become mr arrogant egomaniac i can proclaim to you something that's really happened and by the way that's what you do when you tell people about christ hopefully in a loving kind and gracious way but you're not starting point with self you're starting point with historic realities Good for us to know. Good for us to remember. This God is knowable. Number two, another reality about God that might help us put the resurrection in in perspective. God is the starting point. God is the starting point. It says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. And you say to yourself or you say to me, yeah, but people I talk to don't believe that. Neither did these people. But nevertheless, because we're talking about a divinely revealed reality tied to history, it's his starting point. Like it or not, this is my starting point. And by the way, that doesn't make sense, and resurrection doesn't make sense, and I'm not going to be able to make my point unless we start with God. So God is the starting point. And I want to start by telling you, he doesn't ask for questions at this point in time, He's just speaking with authority. I'm going to start by telling you the story, the narrative, and it starts with God making everything, okay? He is the starting point. He's not one of the gods of the pantheon. He's not randomness. He's none other than the one who started the world. He created the world. Now, number three, a third reality about God that's related to it, that helps us to put the resurrection in perspective, God is sovereign. God is king. God has the right to rule. God is in charge. God is the one who is the authority. That's what I mean by sovereign. Verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Notice how those are tied together. If he's the creator of everything, that naturally, supernaturally, however you want to look at it, that means he is the sovereign. That means he is the Lord. That means he he is in charge. That means he can say whatever he wants to say. That means he's free to do so super logical makes tons of sense if god makes the world he does what he wants to do cuz it all belongs to him i don't want to digress too much but there are things that you make that are yours you create they belong to you you can do with them what you want to do with them it's just an illustration but if the world belongs to god he's the starting point he can he can set the rules he can set the agenda And he's trying to make it clear to them that if there's one God who made everything, that means uh, he's in charge. Again, he's not saying, now, do you guys believe this? Is this your same worldview as I have? Because it's actually not, but he's unpacking for them how it is that that and the empty tomb will make sense. There are implications of God being the creator. Creator a second before we get to number four. What's happening is, to not use fancy terminology, what's happening is, if you have a creator and you have creatures created by the creator, he's arguing that there's there's a relationship and it's not a peer relationship that God is in charge and we're under him and if that God has... Standards, um, laws, that there's obligation, okay? There are parameters in this relationship. I mean, the most basic one being, you guys down there are not the same as I am up here. We've got to keep that straight in our heads. And so he's arguing for that that formal kind of um, rele- creature, get it backward, creator-creature relationship. It's just logical. Number four. God is unmanageable. He's unmanageable. Verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, here we go, unmanageable, does not live in temples made by man. Contrast. Right? You guys made all these temples. You designed all these shrines and, and things and, and images and, and you know what, if we have a creator God who made everything who's sovereign over all, I can tell you where He doesn't live. I, I can tell you that He's not living under your thumb to be controlled by you. No, that, that, that's not it at all. What you make and what I make is under our control. I mean, even think about if you've ever seen an idol where there's food. Some religions give food to their idols. Well, the maker of the idol decides what kind of food that God likes. The maker of that idol decides when that God eats. The maker of that food decides when God is full, because the food is still there. And that's just a little snapshot glimpse of we are in charge of our deities. And Paul's taking it and turning it on its head and saying, if there's a God who created everything and is sovereign over all, he is not limited to the boxes that you put him in. You're fundamentally, dare we say, wrong. It's no wonder you're going to re- reject the resurrection. You're completely backward in your perspective of things. And again, we could say, man, he's so mean. But if it's true that there's one God who's sovereign over all and will not be controlled by us under our thumbs, does it mean to tell people the truth? No. He doesn't want people to continue to be in denial of reality. Especially where it's headed with resurrection. Resurrection. So we can see it as mean, or we can see it as this, this, this guy loves them so much that he's willing to even, here's what's going to happen, have some of them make fun of him and mock him. God is not manageable. He's unmanageable. He's not made by us. How about number five? God is needless. He is needless. Verse 25 says, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything make a quick list for me what does God need well he doesn't need food he doesn't need anything I mean just to push a little shock value button you know he he doesn't need our prayers he calls for them yes and he's a gracious God we're going to see he's personal and he actually welcomes them but he doesn't need them to make him fulfilled as God. Um, he doesn't need our worship. He calls for it. And, and, and he's pleased by genuine worship. And that's true. But you know God's not up in heaven going. Man I can't wait for him to crank up the guitars. I need guitars. It's all fine and good. A response to his graciousness to us. But he's not there yet. He's making it clear. That this God. Is different. He has no needs And again, he's dealing with people that are coming from a worldview that day in and day out, their deities are needy. They don't get up by themselves. They don't get propped up on top of the high places and the mountains by themselves. They don't get made by themselves. They actually are created and served by human hands because they are needy deities. And he's got to take that worldview and he's got to show that that worldview is bankrupt. And it's no wonder you're denying the resurrection. What we create is under our control. Ironically, then it controls us. He doesn't go there, but I couldn't resist. Think how crazy it is, even in our culture, where we don't set up shrines, most of us. But we have objects of devotion. Objects of of devotion, translation, objects of worship. And we control them. And then oftentimes, amazingly, what? They control us. We need a resurrected Savior too. Let's keep going. Number five, another reality about God that helps put the resurrection in place if we're going for a big picture. God is needless. God is needless. Did we already do that? Needless to say. Just check in, seeing if you guys are awake. Number six, we're on number six? (sighs) Number six. Would you guys have let me go? good. Thank you. You love me enough to confront me. Okay. Even though it might mean I make fun of you and my, nah, never mind. Okay. Let's go to number six. God is provider. God is provider. What's starting to happen now is he wanted to show, let's use fancy language for a second. He wanted to show that God is distant. God is different. God, God, God is beyond us. He's transcendent. But then he also has to make it clear that, that he's close and personal and cares and this is what makes the christian god so unique from every other kind of god because typically it's either or he's either my buddy my boyfriend kind of god and he's under my thumb in that sense or he's so far and transcendent that there's nothing i can know about him and he's showing us here because by the way it shows itself purposely in the person of jesus christ how it all comes together go ahead and look at verse 25 the latter part since he himself See, we don't serve Him. He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the provider. He's the one who takes care of us. And this makes sense logically. If He's the creator, He's got to be the provider. And He's making it clear that everything has come from Him. By the way, this is pushing us toward, well, so we're dependent. We should listen. We should care what He has to say. And notice the universality of it all. See, they've got the many, many gods. Not, not one of those many gods could call for strict allegiance, strict devotion. None of those gods could say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him as in only Him. Because there are all these other gods. But here, notice the universality. He Himself, so He's personal, gives to all mankind. That's universal. Life and breath and Everything. So he's arguing for this God. The, he's the one true God. Different from all of your deities. And by the way, notice how inclusive it is. And I can't help but drop that word in 21st century middle America. He's, Christianity is super inclusive. Everybody wants us to be more inclusive. I'm first in line. I, I'm, I'm absolutely wanting to embrace inclusivism. In this sense but there are implications and ramifications. You want to be inclusive? Yes, there's one God who is over, let's use the inclusive word that we all like, over all. And He Himself gives to all. The emphasis is everything, inclusivity, everything we have comes from Him. I'm feeling so politically correct. But there are ramifications. If there's one God who's been the giver of all these gifts to all, then he can say things like, This is my son. The only begotten. Listen to him. The Apostle Peter is not illogical when he says in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. The inclusivity drives the uniqueness of Christ and dare we say the exclusivity. It's so good what Paul's doing here. I might take a little bit different tact talking to one of my friends because they're not Athenians. They might be looking thing, at things a different way, but I'm learning here. I'm wanting you to learn too. Thinking through where they're coming from and how can you take the big picture story so that it can at least make sense to them. Doesn't mean they're going to believe it, but it can make sense to them. They can see why resurrection is so important. God is the provider He's the one that takes care. And notice, then there's going to be obligation if He's the one who's provider. Number seven, God is determiner. God is determiner. So we've got some personal. Now it doesn't seem so personal, but we're going to see that it actually is. Verse 26, And He made from one man, that unites us, that's for sure, every nation, inclusive again, of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, more inclusivity, having determined... Allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he's actively engaged. We see that clearly in verse 26. He's not merely the distant God who's utterly and entirely unknowable. Uh, He's involved in the creation, actively engaged, involved. He's not the creation, but he's involved in his creation. There's a difference. And he's a determiner, which for Christians, we we, we rest in that and we say we're not we're not dealing with the god of chance the god of happenstance the god who's you know not not predictable as far as keeping his promises and not in charge we can't really rest in him christians we say you know this is our comfort for those who are not coming to god on his terms this is a source of oftentimes consternation not comfort determining determining i'm the determiner of my own destiny It's as, it's as if we say, you know, who does he think he is? God or something? It's very godlike to be a determiner. And when we think we're the authors of our own destinies and we write the rules, it makes sense that we make altars. <laughs> and we make deities because we can keep them under our control. We're determining everything about them. You see, the whole radical shift in worldview, if He's the Creator sovereign over all, He's determining things, He's in charge, He's God, and you can rest in Him. And now, I can almost hear, earlier in the book of Acts, where it talked about God determining to have His Son crucified for redemption. You see, this God who's a determining God has a plan, has a purpose. It's not just randomness. Uh, history's not going in circles and, and is upside down and, and is never going anywhere. No, actually, this God I'm telling you about in this meta narrative Paul is saying actually is a God who, 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 who is functioning in time, in space, in a linear way. It's all headed somewhere. And Jesus is key to where it's headed. Remember this when we get to the end of our text. Resurrection is important as it relates to where it's all headed. He wants us to see the big picture. I want you to see the big picture. I want you to have a growing burden if you are a Christian to help your friends see the big picture. He's the determining God. Number eight, God is personal. God is personal. Again, we've got to see the transcendent, different Otherly, he's creator, we're creature, difference, but, but he's most certainly personal. That makes him, it makes him knowable also. How about verse 27? That they should seek him. That they should seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He's findable. He uses that graphic kind of word picture. He's made himself known. He's working in time and and in history to the point where that that we might feel and and reach the destination and arrive and find him again. Where we're headed is knowable revelation. And the greatest climactic point of knowable revelation would be Christ coming and making God known. Revealing Himself. And being raised from the dead. He can proclaim that. He can be found Ultimately found in Christ. Remember, he's addressing people that have to have all these gods for all these different things because there's something in them that tells them they've got a problem and they've got to have some sort of way to deal with all these things to the point where they even say, an an unknown God. And he says, you know what? He can be found. And he's going to point to the resurrection ultimately. Well, let's keep going. Continuing on, still number 8, verse 27. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Creator, distant, different, sovereign, determiner. Actually, not far from each one of us. Then verse 28, he's going to quote their authorities. Quote well-known sayings from their culture. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul's been culturally observant enough where he can quote their authorities, their intellectuals, and say, here's a a good statement. He's not affirming their religion, but even a stop clock is right twice a day. Oh, oh, let me quote one of your poets, one of your authorities, one of your uh, intellectuals, one of your philosophers. And whether they meant this or not, and by the way, in context, they didn't, but you know the saying and I'll actually repeat it to you so you can understand the logic of what I'm saying. God is personal. And in our context, this God is the God I'm proclaiming to you. Let's move on to number nine. Another thing about God that's helpful to know if we're going to understand the resurrection is God is un. Imagined, God is unimagined. In one sense, the Apostle Paul has, you know, spent enough time in the city walking around, figuring things out. He may not have gone up and interviewed people, but in effect, he was walking around saying, who is God to you? Okay? Right? Because he's he's seeing who God is to them. All the different things, all the different worship structures. He's figured out who God is to them. And, and boy, do they have imaginations. <laughs> okay? They've got some serious imaginations. And he's going to make it clear now that God is unimagined. Okay? God is unimagined. Now, By the way, now we're kind of seeing what he meant when he said, hmm, I perceive you're very spiritual. Oh, yes, we are. Thank you for your compliment. You, 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 do you enjoy the city? Maybe it was, I perceived you are very spiritual. You know, wind up. <laughs> now that you're listening. God is unimagined. How about verse 29? Being then God's offspring, we come from Him and not vice versa. Even your poets know that. We come from Him and not vice versa. I think that's what he's getting at. Being then God's offspring, as I can even quote from your, your culture, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Can't fault him for not using good logic. If we come from him, one thing we ought not do is use our imagination to try to describe who he is. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. It's crazy. It doesn't even make any sense. It's got everything exactly upside down. Now, back to that who is God to you thing. In one sense, I want to commend that question to you. In one sense, I want you to ask your friends, you know, tell me who is God to you? Because I think that's what Paul did in effect because he was observing how they would answer that. And by the way, if you ask that, you'll be perceived as thoughtful, maybe um, sensitive, um, you know, not like those other Christians. And, And people will say, well, I'll tell you who God is to me. And they'll just share their imagination with you. And to me, God is this. And to me, God is that. But be prepared if you're willing to ask the question that way. In a good, loving, caring, compassionate Christian way. You better be doing the wind-up. Not literally. Because Paul is going to go on in the next verse to use the label ignorant. You're stupid. Boys and girls, if you don't use that word in your house, use it today. To use your imagination to determine who God is, is foolish, ignorant, stupid, ludicrous, insane, illogical. If we come from Him, how do we figure out who He is? Not by using our imaginations. He's the one who tells us who He is. It comes from Him. He's the authority. He's the one who's in charge. We have no business. It's crazy. And again, you could say, Paul is so mean for stepping on their toes. How about so loving, so kind, so gracious? Because you really shouldn't be using your imagination when it comes to describing the one true sovereign God, who, by the way, I'm pointing to the cross, is one day going to judge. We're going to get to that. It would be the height of arrogance and the height of ignorance to actually say to me God is and then say what I've said regarding Him regarding, and regardless of what He said. Pretty interesting of just how, how relevant this, this tactic, this approach, this, this whole thing is to you and to me where we live. And you don't even have to ask the question. Just eyes wide open. You'll figure out who God is to people. And so, you can love them enough to help them understand big picture. Let's move on. Finally, number 10. If we're going to understand the resurrection, we're going to understand something else about God, and that's that God is judge. That God is judge. Verse 30 says, The times of ignorance. See, I told you what he was going to do. He's talking about what he was just talking about, and that is using your imagination to determine who God is. The times of ignorance... God overlooked see he's patient his personal God is patient but now he commands all people everywhere to repent notice that again inclusive language so inclusive this one God overall has been patient long-suffering but you know what the revelation is climaxed like never before with the coming of His Son, which is where it was all headed. And now He's been raised from the dead bodily. You know what? The time for patience is, is, is run out. And now everybody needs to repent. Everybody needs to have a change of mind and stop saying things like, To me, God is. Well, you've just told us a lot about yourself. Thank you very much. We, you need to know who God really is, revealed in His Son, Jesus. and So you need to have a, a fundamental change in your thinking. Because God was patiently overlooking, but now there's a command from God. There'll be enough of that. How about verse 31? Because He has fixed a day. Oh, remember verse 26? God determines. Because He has fixed a day. Can't say that about any of the other deities. Can't say that about human beings either, infallibly. Because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Oh, He is being very kind. See, this is why it's so much better for you and for me, instead of just raising our voices, saying, believe the resurrection, believe the resurrection, believe the resurrection, or yelling at people about Jesus. It's so much better to at least understand where they're coming from, Step back. Do your very best by God's grace and with His help to help them understand the big picture, starting with God, ending with judgment, understanding how Jesus fits into the whole thing. It's the most loving thing we can do because history is going somewhere. God has determined that history is going somewhere. And everyone will give an account one day. Judgment is coming. And God is going to judge, it says, in Righteousness. His audience there would have known what he was talking about because it's a word that's used not just in the Bible, it's used in secular writings as well and in culture. He'll judge in fairness. He'll judge according to his law. And think about where he's been going. There's one God who's sovereign over all. That means he's a king. He has authority. Okay. And when he judges, he's going to judge with fairness and righteousness. So all of the shenanigans has been going on about, to me God is, to me God is, to me God is. I am using my imagination. We have whole conferences, the reimagining conference. And it's worn on our shirt sleeve like wonderful virtue. We're so open-minded. What we don't want is a resurrected Savior who's going to judge in righteousness. Because we've got this God who's the God of all. Overall, who's expecting, and rightfully so, for all of us to see him as God and treat him like he's God, not the one of our imagination, but the one he's revealed himself to be most supremely in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Dun dun dun. dun. That's how that goes. So we can be unloving, selfish self-centered, unkind, ungracious, and when we see the accident in the intersection, we can turn our heads and keep driving and say, I'm such a loving person. Someone may have felt confronted if I would have stopped. Or we can be kind and gracious and bold and do something, even though it might hurt. Central to his revelation and purposes is, uh, we read in verse 1, the latter part, by a man, the judgment's coming by a man whom he has appointed. Remember, he's the determining God, the appointing God, the one who can do whatever he wants to do, God. By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You better believe in the resurrection. Because the same one who atoned for sins, for those who would believe in Him, and who was raised from the dead for life, is the same one who's going to judge those who don't trust in Him. It's a heavy deal. So we want people to believe in the resurrection. We want people to understand the big picture and where Christ fits into the whole thing. How about that for an Easter sermon from the Apostle Paul? How about we know why people deep down inside wouldn't want there to be a bodily resurrection? Because if Christ is raised from the dead, then Christ is the judge, according to God's meta narrative. It's no wonder we don't believe it. It's the most awful reality imaginable if you're not trusting in Christ because you're going to be judged by Christ, which is what Psalm 2 talks about. So we can be mean to people and not tell them, or we can be kind to people and tell them. Now, how do people respond? Verse 32 says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So if Paul was a salesman, man, he he didn't make his numbers. You know, he's not a success. If he's a marketer, he didn't do a very good job. If you're a marketer of the gospel, you're not going to do a very good job either. Some mocked. By the way, I would suggest to you that's one evidence that you got the message right. (laughs) Okay? Not the only one. Some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Maybe as if to say, "Uh, we have questions about this. I want want to know more about this. And then it says So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. They trusted, among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. I love it that personal names are given to us in the Bible. Because they're real people like us. Because we're talking about a real thing called the resurrection of Jesus. And real people believe in the real resurrection. Well, maybe it's a an Easter sermon like you've never heard before. Not trying to just be novel or cute or interesting. But I am trying to help us think in terms of how do we communicate the truth about the resurrection in ways that people can at least understand it well enough to say, I reject it. I have questions. Or I embrace that just like you do by faith. And it is about communicating it to them, not compromising it. We know he doesn't compromise. He preaches repentance. He knows they don't like resurrection and that's his key point doesn't compromise at all. But he makes it clear enough that some are going to believe, some are going to mock and reject, and some are going to say, I'd like to know more about this. So my prayer for you is that you would believe in resurrection, yes. And you would then have a growing burden at making it make sense to people in a way that they can understand, not in a way that is compromised. Happy Resurrection Sunday.